The Good Investing Podcast connects you with successful investors and business leaders who invest in or are experts in a range of industries, but do it with a difference. We need to start thinking about optimal cardiometabolic risk factors much earlier, probably in their 30s. Think about how am I meeting life simple seven? So that includes your weight, blood pressure, your cholesterol, your smoking status, whether you're a diabetic, level of physical exercise, and also your sleep quality and sleep duration. Hi, my name is Matt Nicard. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Ethical Partners. Today's podcast features Dr. Jason Kaplan, who is a cardiologist with a focus on preventative medicine and overall health and well-being. And I'll properly introduce Jason in just a moment, but you might be wondering what the link is between health and wellness and good investing. Well, it's a very good question, and there are three aspects to the answer. I'll just run through them now. Firstly, the Ethical Partners Opportunity and Risk Assessment, or the IPORA, which is what we call part of our investment process, assesses human rights for each company under coverage. And one important part of that is a company's human rights policy, which should incorporate how it treats its employees from a health and wellness perspective, both physical and mental health. Secondly, there's several companies in our investment universe which have their primary business in some of the areas that Jason will talk about today. And we're going to touch on alternative medicine and nutrition. Companies that come to mind, of course, are Blackmore's, Australian Clinical Labs, Bega, the supermarkets and others. And thirdly, and I hope it doesn't come across as cliched, but clearly your best investment is yourself and your own health and well-being. And an effective CEO workforce is a healthy one. And the discussion today will be through the lens relevant to the typical listener to the Good Investing Podcast. So senior people in the financial services industry, listed companies, consultants, and advisors. Now, a bit about Jason. So Dr. Kaplan studied medicine at the University of New South Wales and graduated with honours in 1999 and then completed his internal medicine training at St. George and Prince of Wales Hospitals and adult cardiology training at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. Prior to training in cardiology, he completed additional advanced training in medical oncology and pharmacology, and he's completed additional training also in cardiac imaging in Australia and has spent time at the Mayo Clinic in the US. And he's adopted, importantly, a more holistic approach to patient care, particularly those with multiple medical issues. He's also a proponent of integrative cardiology, incorporating principles of cardiovascular, nutritional, functional, mind-body medicine in the care of his patients. Now, in the discussion today, and it's a fascinating discussion, we're going to talk about the number one cause of mortality, heart disease, the progressive nature of heart disease. We dig deeply into three critical risk factors, three of them, age, genetics, and cholesterol. And we look at preventative measures people can take to protect themselves including one of the easiest and simplest and most important scans you can get done to help assess if you have the beginnings of arterial disease. We talk about the difference between public health policy and personal care. We delve into an area our sustainability team has done some recent research on, diet and nutrition, and we look at obesity levels, the ideal exercise regime, and which supplements um, are the most effective. And of course, it goes without saying, we're not offering any specific medical advice or investment advice on this podcast. You should see your GP or your advisor before making any decisions with regards to your health or investment-related issues. That's quite a long introduction, Jason. Thank you for being a guest on the Good Investing Podcast. Thank you for having me, Matt. Now, why don't we just start with your um, overarching philosophy on good health and wellness? Great. Excellent question. So I thought I'd just start off by why preventative cardiology or why, how did I get into this, this area? And, you know, when I trained at Sydney's Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, I spent three years dealing with acute cardiology. So we used to get up in the middle of the night and open up people's arteries with acute heart attacks, with angioplasty and stenting. We used to see people in acute heart failure and they were all at the end of the line. They had already presented with, with bad disease. And I saw a real opportunity to try to get people much earlier before they sort of fell off, fell off the cliff and before they had their had their first heart attack. So as a consultant, when I came out in practice about 10 years ago, I decided that's where I wanted to, to focus my, my practice. And my, my overarching sort of feeling is that in a way, it's not just one thing. I talk to people about some of the four pillars of a optimal cardiovascular lifestyle, and that must include, you know, diet, diet and nutrition. And we'll talk a bit more about diet, but but healthy dietary patterns. Um, you know, exercise has to has to be be part of it as well. Dealing with some sort of dealing with stress and and or, or emotional distress. And the last I put down to others, and these include relationships and and environment, and I think for all of those things to come together leads to, to optimal cardiovascular health. 
Well, that, that's great context for uh, a lot of what we're going to talk about. And of course, the, the ABS just released their mortality stats for 2021. And the number one cause of death is, again, heart disease, um, as it has been for, for many years. Um, and beyond that, of course, you've got um, all the impacts of uh, the debilitating impacts on, on the individual and their families when, uh, when there's not a mortality event from a from a heart attack, um, and when when people survive, so um, can we talk a little bit about atherosclerosis and um, and and that that of course is the at the core of all of this. Can you describe what that actually is and and uh, and the progressive nature of of arterial disease? Yeah, so atherosclerosis is the buildup in the lining of the arteries of both of, it's called fibro fatty plaque and it's a little bit different to the plaque we find 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 in our teeth because it's a, it's made up of often lipid rich particles and but contributed by contributed by in, inflammatory cells and other components of the of the cholesterol profile and it's in a way it's a constantly it's a changing and an active active process for for a lot of people and that starts fairly early in life we've done we've done autopsy studies on um, on sort of young soldiers from the Korean War, where we've seen that atherosclerosis can develop quite early, early in life. I um, guess which underpins some of the feeling that good nutritional and lifestyle-based practices should start fairly early. Now, as atherosclerosis builds up, it can build up in different artery beds. Arteries are all, all over our body, but the, probably the most relevant to cardiovascular disease is especially the coronary arteries, which is the arteries that supply blood to our, our heart muscle, and that's what cardiologists deal with every day, but also plaque in the arteries to the brain, so the carotid arteries, um, and that that's got a relationship to stroke as well, which can be equally as, as devastating. And atherosclerosis is not just by cholesterol, but but now we know that there's a strong contribution from from in, inflammation and and inflammatory cells, and also the environment in our, our overall me- metabolic health in, health environment. So it's mediated by multiple factors. But as atherosclerosis, so as that plaque in arteries starts to grow, it can lead to it can lead to narrowings in the, in the blood vessels that that can cause symptoms such as in the heart uh, chest discomfort you know short short shortness of breath but more importantly also that plaque can sometimes become unstable and you have unstable plaque is unhealthy plaque and that's the that's the sort of plaque we we worry about the more unstable plaque can suddenly part of the plaque can break off but also, it acts it acts as a nidus or acts as a as a focus for for inflammation, and then blood clot can form on top of that plaque, and in a way, that's what causes a heart attack. And the really interesting thing, Matt, is that you know, for a lot of men with with heart disease, a heart a heart attack will be their first presentation of cardiovascular disease, and they say, "Well, why didn't I have any symptoms?" And the reason is because that. That plaque was not causing a severe narrowing, but a reaction happened inside the artery where you had an artery that was being narrowed by around 50% that didn't, that, and that's plenty of blood flow to go through, but all of a sudden it goes to 100%. And that's, that's when people present with, you know, bad chest pain, bad chest pain, sweating, numbness down the arm. And that is a medical, that is a medical emergency. And I just want to put one other point out there that's especially relevant is that women do not present typically like men. Often women present somewhat dif- different in symptoms. So it's really important to, to realize that in, in women with heart disease, the presentations are sometimes a little bit different and a little bit atypical. All right. So just to pack up, uh, pick apart a couple of things you just said there. So so it's progressive, and um, you, you referred to studies done on on soldiers that died from other means, and and when the, the their actual bodies have been um, examined and and looked at, they have the signs of arterial disease in their twenties. In the twenties, that's right. Okay, so it's so it's 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 progressive. Something I never realised. Um, so so what, why why do the molecules implant themselves on the arterial walls? And what is that process and what contributes to that process? So this is a great question. And, you know, the, the biology of, of atherosclerosis or how atherosclerosis forms was, uh, has been evolving over the, over the last few, few decades. It's been, it's been a constant question. Some of the major work in this space has been done by 
Peter Libby, who's a professor at Harvard, and uh, a professor called Valentin Fuster. And I was lucky enough to be his medical student for two months in my lecture at Mount Sinai. And Valentin Fuster studied the early why heart attacks happen, what happens to plaque. But what the process behind it is we, for example, we have um, cholesterol particles in our blood. And there is, I guess, good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. The bad cholesterol is called the, the LDL or, or uh, the, the very low density lipoprotein. And more importantly, something called lipoprotein little a. Um, these are in the blood and they get taken up in the, in the artery walls. That, that then starts to, to stimulate an inflammatory response. And that, that response causes inflammation cells to come into the plaque. Those inflammatory cells take up the cholesterol-rich particles and then cause a reaction for, for plaque to grow. And so the more, the higher the concentration of these, these bad cholesterol particles in the blood, the greater the chance that they'll be taken up in, in the arterial wall. And what we really know now is, is that as, as you said, it starts, it starts early. And so we know that the amount of years some some people are are exposed to very high levels of bad cholesterol in their blood can, is is proportional to the amount of plaque that they will develop. But the challenge we have is we don't know when for the individuals when someone is going to start to lay down plaque in their arteries. And I just want to touch on another point you mentioned as well. So so the first experience a lot of people have with arterial disease is a heart attack or a cardiac event. Um, I've read that somewhere between 30 to 50% of first heart attacks have a result in, in death. Um, I, I'm not sure, I'm sure there's been various studies. What, 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 what type of proportion has that extreme outcome? Do, do you know from the research? We are, we are, getting, we are getting better. Um, in, and in Australia, we are, for in, in urban areas, we are very fortunate that we have most everywhere has what's called the, the treatment that revolutionized cardiology introduced in the 1980s was a treatment called percutaneous coronary intervention. Um, and that's where via the leg or the wrist, if someone's having a heart attack, we can put a catheter and a wire up into someone's arteries and open it up. So if you're in, in Australia in an urban area, you are lucky because you will have access to what we call primary PCI. So you can go to be, be at a hospital within 45 minutes and have your artery opened. And that has dramatically increased the survival of acute heart attacks. So while it may, it may, it may have been as high as 25 to you know, 30 to 50%, uh, then the more modern numbers are looking like around 10 to 15% will be, is a fatal event. So we're doing, we're, we're doing better, but there is there is still a long way to go in terms of the the early detection of of, of heart disease, but you know this is what my point made is that we're great at treating very sick people, and we're great at opening up, fixing up really bad hearts. But we've got to get better at being able to pick up pick up the people that will run into trouble beforehand. So, so just on that point, is the implication here that um, I mean I think conventional thinking is around you start thinking about your heart when you're. 55, 60, 65, it's something you hear your father or grandfather or mother or grandmother talking about. Um, so it, it sounds to me like uh, you start to need to think about it a lot earlier, even if you're seemingly healthy, you've had no issues. Um, I mean, is that the approach you take? Absolutely. We need to start thinking about optimal, I guess, cardiometabolic risk factors and our risk for heart disease much earlier. Probably, I would be thinking that for most people, it should be in 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 their thirties, and at least think about how am I how am I meeting. You know, the American Heart Association used to be Life Simple Seven, and now they've just added another simple eight because they've added sleep and sleep quality. So you have to think about how I'm eating life simple seven. So that includes, you know, that includes your weight, um, your, your blood pressure, your cholesterol, your, your smoking status, whether you, you know, whether you're a di diabetic, your level of, your level of physical, physical exercise, and also your, you know, now sleep quality. We're realizing that sleep quality and sleep duration is very important risk factor for heart disease. All right, let's, we don't have time to touch on all of those, but let's just, just touch on a, on a few. I mean, is it fair to say that age is um, is the most significant risk factor over time? Yes and no. So <clears throat> in Western society, 
age is a age is a significant risk factor. And if you've been around on this planet long enough, there's a chance. You know, the statistics say that your lifetime as a man, your lifetime risk of, of heart disease will be relatively high. But there's a there's a great study that I like to quote that was published in the Lancet in 2017, and looked at uh, study the coronary arteries of a group of um, of people in the Amazon, a hunter gatherer tribe called the Chimane. And they found the most amazing thing. They found that men, the Chimani people in, of age 75, you know, the majority of them had no evidence of heart disease. And they, and they, they measured it by coronary artery calcium scores, which is something we'll talk a little bit about later. But they, they looked at the arteries and they realized that their arterial health of this group of people was so much better than their, their Western, their Western counterparts. And how did that happen? Because they're hunter gatherers. They are on the move all day. They have a fairly, uh, they have a fairly basic food of sort of lean, of, of lean protein and, and mostly, and mostly vegetables. Very little processed, very little processed food as well. So it doesn't have to be age. Age can con- age is a, is a contributor, but you know I see I see healthy healthy people in their seventies all the time with no with no evidence of heart disease. So it's you know it's in a way it's a little bit more than just just age. Okay, so so let's let's look at this ten year cardiovascular risk assessment or risk score or calculator. Um, and uh, if age is, is a factor, not the only factor, and, and uh, you've just given us a great answer there. Um, when we look at that risk calculator, because I think it can be, um, can be an issue for people, um, if, you're, if you're young and you punch your details into a risk calculator, the, the chances are you're going to get a low risk score, right? Yes, that's right. That can be problematic, can't it? If arterial disease starts at a young age and you want to take a preventative approach, so I've, I've got a low risk score at 40 years old and then come back and get rechecked or rescored at 60 and then have a high risk score with the obvious implication that I should have acted earlier. So really a, a 10 year risk score is not that helpful if at 40, I want to live another 50 years. I mean, shouldn't we have a 20 or 40 year risk calculator? Can you talk us through how you assess the risk in, in that regard? Great, great question and great, great observation, Matt. So, traditionally, when you when you go see your 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 primary primary care doctor, um, there's a there's a whole lot of risk score calculators that originally were based on a town in Massachusetts called Framingham, and they were mostly a white a white pop, a white population. Um, and then we Australia has we have evolved our own risk score calculator. It puts in the major risk factors that I that I talked about, such as diabetes, blood pressure, cholesterol age, fam- family history, and then using, using statistics comes out with, with, a, with a 10-year risk. But you're right, if you, if you are young, despite a lot of risk factors, your risk score w- w- will be low. So the way I like to think of risk score calculators, they are useful for population-based recommendations and to guide us, but they are not all that useful for, in a way, in my clinic setting for the patient in front of you. So I like to look at, and the thing that risk score calculators do not do very well, and this is where I think some of the major falling is, is they don't include weight. Um, they often, and one of the risk score calculators I tend to use now is one that will incorporate coronary artery calcium. So they don't in- incorporate an individual's atherosclerosis burden. Um, they don't include exercise. And I certainly think lack of exercise is a major, car- and physical unfitness is a major cardiovascular risk factor. And I, when people come see me, I'll tell them where they lie. They sit according to other people and they're, they're very interested to know, uh, they're very interested to know how they sit compared to, compared to other people. So, and we also have a whole lot of new techniques where we can certain blood tests that we can further gain idea about what someone's risk is. So risk score calculators are useful in a population for the patient in front of you. I think we can do better. All right, we're going to circle back to that difference between public health um, views and and individual um, clinical settings um, in a minute. Can we touch on cholesterol? You touched on it before with regards to HDL and LDL cholesterol, triglycerides you didn't mention, but can you just run through um, the importance of those different factors and the influence that has on, on heart health? Sure. So 
One thing I'd like to point out that it's not just all about all about cholesterol. And when people talk about heart disease, it's not just all about cholesterol. The reason why we see such a ma- such a large focus on it because we know that high bad cholesterol levels, so high low density lipoprotein, is associated with coronary artery disease. And we also know that by reducing LDL in someone who has established heart disease, we can reduce their risk. Of, of, of a subsequent of a subsequent event and it's one of the one of the risk factors that we have things in our toolbox to to treat with with medications and with diet and lifestyle and and, and supplements so it's one that we can modify because it's difficult to modify genetics difficult to modify age but we can modify a lot a lot of the other risk factors so when you go to your your GP your primary care doctor you'll get a cholesterol profile so that will often include something called uh, total total cholesterol it often includes something called triglycerides which are usually your 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 fat laden cholesterol particles these are in high numbers these certainly are not healthy and tend to contribute to deposit in arterial walls it will include your ldl which is your low density lipoprotein which is your bad cholesterol and it includes your hdl which is your high density lipoprotein which is which is protective and so that that's the standard cholesterol profile most people will get at that at the general at the the general practitioners and there are other things that we we can we we can, we can do we know now that there is a, there's a mark, there's a blood test called uh, apolipoprotein b and apo the way reason why ApoB is great it is a it is a marker of all atherogenic cholesterol particles so these are this is a marker of all cholesterol particles in your blood that are likely to contribute to depositing atherosclerosis so i as a routine i, I measure ApoB for, for a lot of my my patients and i mentioned briefly about lipoprotein little a so lipoprotein little a is another small dense sort of protein that sticks to certain cholesterol molecules and called makes them more likely to deposit in the in the artery wall and the european society of cardiology now recommend that everyone over the age of 35 should have a baseline lipoprotein little a and the reason why it's important if it's elevated up to up to 3 times the upper limit of normal your risk of heart disease is almost doubled over your lifetime and we we are coming up with ways that we can we can modify that as well right i want to go back to the the broader public health or um, kind of broader advice versus a clinical setting. So I think the uh, the standard range, as it were, for um, LDL cholesterol is like zero to three and a half millimoles per litre or thereabouts, sometimes a zero to four. Um, that's the range. But if you see someone with 3.4 reading, and that's just too high, right? So so how do you how do you discern then? How, how should our listeners understand the difference between that acceptable range, in inverted commas, and what's actually not a good outcome for the individual. Um, so you're right in that what's interesting was when you look back historically to LDL LDL levels over the last few hundred hundreds of years and even back to you know, hunt, hunter-gatherers, uh, you know, there, when I talked about the, uh, Chimani who are hunter-gatherer people, their average LDL is 1.7. And 1.7 is a marker where we would recommend people with established heart disease to get to that we know can contribute to plaque reversal. So that is where we, in a way, we should be as a, as a species or as a human when we're, we're active. You know, then the westernization and industrialization of our societies has caused our LDL to be progressively higher. So we know from, I guess, optimal studies that in order to if you, to have a lifetime of probably prevention, we'd like to see that LDL number around 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 two point five. Um, that is obviously modified by other by by other factors. But if you if you hear listening to us today, you have no no heart disease, you know whatsoever, but are keen to do everything you can to prevent the development of atherosclerosis. You should be aiming for an LDL of, of, of around two two point five, or uh, yeah, or non non HDL, which is some of all plaques, probably around around three. Um, and there are things you and that does not necessarily have to be with medication. So so what's so what is the range then? Well, what's the zero to three and a half? Well, the, the zero is. Uh, well, the zero. I don't know where. Yeah. The, the, zero, the lowest we we are starting to see people is that we have very powerful new cholesterol drugs, Matt. That 
that are that are injection injections given monthly or fortnightly they can bring down the bring down the cholesterol by over 70% so no one really gets to zero the lowest we're seeing now in practice is of 0.8 maybe 0.0.9 um and i think that's a that's fair, that's also leads on to another interesting topic because when I talk to people about cholesterol levels, and there are some people that need to take medications and statins, and it does provide a benefit, but there are a lot of people who've been on cholesterol-lowering medication just because of a number, and probably their absolute benefit is fairly low. But people, my patients sometimes ask me, well, can my cholesterol be too low? And what are the what are the effects of having too low cholesterol in my body? Because doesn't my body need cholesterol for cell walls, for cell for cell membranes to synthesize certain hormones and steroids within the body? And the answer is yes, that your body does need that need your body does need that cholesterol. Um, but also your body your body's an amazing thing. It's it even having that that lower cholesterol, it is still able to produce those those needed hormones. In men who have, you know, a high risk for heart disease, and this is, you know, if someone in their fifties or sixties that has had a, had a heart attack, we the, the levels of LDL or bad cholesterols we are now aiming for are much lower, and there we are not seeing, you know, adverse effects from achieving very low LDL levels. I always just talk to men about there's been some there's in the literature about m- mood disturbance and depression, um, and I always ask men about that um but interestingly you know you know depression can be associated with a man having a first cardiac event or a bypass and so one of the when i've had patients who've had a major heart surgery or a or a i guess a heart attack it's quite confronting because it's often the first time they're faced with their own mortality and that brings up a lot of feelings that brings up a lot of feelings for for men and i see a lot of people in the i've got a practice in the cbd in sydney and i see a lot of people in the corporate world and in in legal professions and having having a first event can certainly be quite quite confronting um when we all think we're invincible as men um and so I always bring it up and we know very well, and this is the work, some of the work done by Martin Seligman, who I mean, some of your listeners will probably know about some of the work he's done in positive psychology. And he did this, he writes about it in his study in his book called Flourish. There was a study that did about optimism and men that were, had, were optimistic that looked forward to life after a, after a heart attack or, or heart surgery did 50% better than men who weren't optimistic and were depressed. Now, I can't give you a drug that can give you a 50% survival benefit. <laughs> and so it's, it's really important to, I mean, one thing is really important to be able to talk about it, but to realize that, that, you know, those feelings are there. Oh, that's really interesting. Uh, can we just touch on quickly on, we're going to move on to other things, but HDL, um, some, have, some have said there's a protective component to having higher HDL cholesterol. Um, am I on the right track there? Is that right? Um, and, and then we'll go on to diets and nutrition and how you can, help yourself get that right balance so there is a protective effect of of hdl so hdl is um high density lipoprotein this is the type of cholesterol particle that transports cells transports cholesterol from our arteries back to the liver for 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 excretion and having a high level is certainly is certainly protective. The challenge we have is that there is very, firstly, as, as, as a medical field, there's very little pharmaceuticals that we can use that can affect HDL. It's been a holy grail for pharma company for many, many years. And they've, they've tried hard. They've come up with different molecules and each has failed at the last hurdle or caused, or caused side effects. We do know that there are a few things that reliably can uh, raise HDL. And that, for the most part, that includes regular aerobic phys- physical exercise some of hdl may be may be a genetic genetic de- determinant and some of the medications we use can as incidentally you know raise hdl um, but yes the higher you can achieve hdl the better you know, many years ago, we used to use niacin to, uh, niacin to try and raise HDL. And yes, it does raise HDL, but what we found, it didn't change outcomes. So as a cardiologist, and this is, or, you know, as a, as a clinician, 
I'm, and this is what we always talk about when, and we'll lead on some of our next discussion when about lifestyle and diet interventions or supplements. I'm not just interested in what the numbers look like, or I'm interested in does it achieve a durable clinic, a clinical outcome? And yeah, and a good example was niacin is that we made the HDL numbers look great, but it did not lead to reduction in heart attacks or strokes or coronary events. All right. So we're going to jump to diet in a moment. Just before we do that, I just want to talk about genetics. What proportion of a person's cholesterol is internally generated, of which genetics are a contributor, um, versus consumed via food? Great question. So I'm going to start at one end. I'm going to start at one end of the spectrum, where there are inherited disorders of cholesterol metabolism. These are where in in families we do we know that these are due to single gene disorders, and often you know people have cholesterol in the tens and the elevens. Often you know siblings will have you know cholesterol deposits around their eyes or on their hands, and they develop heart disease fairly early. So that is where there's a very strong determinant of uh, genetics, and that's that's dominant. That's passed down to the next passed down to the next generation and we see heart disease very early on in 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 these people sometimes then moving a bit more across the spectrum sometimes it's not just one gene it's a few genetic determinants um, and we're getting better and better identifying identifying those um, so sometimes it's a few genetic determinants and then sometimes it may be one maybe one or two I would say that you know and it varies how much gen- cholesterol genetically you know some in any individual has it's difficult to be you know give a blanket amount but probably somewhere around 50 maybe around 50 percent of our underlying cholesterol level may be genetically determined um, but that can be significantly modified by our diet and and the and, and the and the environment as well uh, and interestingly uh the, you know, a whole other area which we can, if we've got time to talk about, is the guts as well, because you know some some of these these change some of these these changes that we make in our lifetime in in our bodies, and then can be passed on to our offspring, <laughs> which is a the study of epigenetics, which is a fascinating area. All right, why don't, why don't we um, touch on that? When we talk about diet and nutrition. One last question: the difference between men and women. Uh, looking at the ABS stats again. Um, heart disease uh, is the the second most prevalent um, uh, killer of of women um, as a mortality factor, but there are age differences. You're saying before the differences in why men and women present with regards to cardiac disease. Can you just touch on the differences there for us? Sure. So, in a way, women are protective before protected before the age of menopause, but around 15 years after menopause, women's cardiovascular risk starts to equate men's. So, if most women have menopause somewhere between, you know, with differences with 50 to 55, then you'll see 15 years later, a 65 or 7 year old woman with risk factors, their cardiovascular risk almost equates equates that of men, and I often think women are sometimes forgotten in this area because they're they often don't don't have typical symptoms, and they they may their risk their risk starts starts to change, um, and we know that women's symptoms of of presentation of coronary artery disease and uh, which is the, the the blockages to the blood supply side is the major is the major disease is that they don't present typically like men they might present I'm a little bit more short of breath or a tiny bit of heaviness or chest pain that may not sound quite quite typical for uh, pain related to blockages and often it'll go through one or two iterations before or review of the history before we get we get an idea that hey this is a significant presentation of 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 heart of heart disease. So I think all on all equally as important for men and women to to get checked out early. Um, and and you touched on it before just before we go on to on, on the on the calcium score test, um, which is really really important. Um, and and that scan you can get. So just explain what that scan is. When should you get one? And what does it tell you? Right. So the coronary calcium scoring has been around for the last, uh, I would say, last 30, 30 or so years. 
And practically, it is a very low dose CAT scan of, of your heart done in large radi- in radiology practices that have a CAT scanner that is enabled to do, to do the test. But in the Sydney or in large metropolitan areas, there are many scanners that are available to do that. It's not currently rebated by Medicare. And this why, is something. Why not? Um, this is something that as a, as a group of, you know, cardiologists, we are lobbying government bodies strongly that we think this is an inexpensive test that makes a major difference in terms of risk factors and knowing if someone's got significant heart disease and, and it should be, but it, it's something that's in, in the process of being lobbied for. Um, so it's not covered by Medicare. The cost is about, Anywhere between fifty to two hundred dollars, um, and your GP can can absolutely order one. Or even, to be honest, you could self present for your own if you wanted your own calcium score, um, and then that calcium score gets a number. And the score was uh, was devised by a cardiologist in uh, Florida called Arthur Agustin. Um, some of you some listeners may have heard about the the uh, the South Beach diet, but he 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 wrote a book about the South Beach diet and a linear score somewhere between zero and I've seen numbers of around a few thousand. And what we do with that calcium score, we look at it in terms of where it sits for your your age, um, your sex, and also we're able to look at ethnicity as well. And then I incorporate it into your risk fac- into your risk factors. And we know that calcium scores over 100 confer a 10 times increased relative risk of any cardiovascular event. And often this is a group of people that may benefit from statins or cholesterol-lowering medication. A calcium score of zero implies a uh, very low risk of any major done in the right age group. And the age group it should should we're we're actually finding that doing it earlier is is okay. We never used to recommend people get it done earlier, but with, there's been studies with men as as old as as young as forty where we're starting to do it, um, and women you know over over forty five can you know it's reasonable reasonable to do it. We then can predict that if a calcium score of zero, your risk of any major event is very low. And doesn't mean that's an excuse to go out there and have an unhealthy diet and lifestyle for the next seven years. You can't talk out there and eat Big Macs and Hungry Jacks, but you know, it's very predictive in terms of events. So should a, uh, could a progressive employer offer, uh, offer to, to reimburse an employee for a, for, a, for a test like that, if their GP recommends that, given it's not rebatable? I mean, absolutely. I think that would be an amazing value value add. And interestingly, there's I believe that there's some um, employers in the United States that are starting to do that. I just would counsel people that there is a very small radiation dose associated with any CT scan. A calcium score is about five chest X-rays worth of radiation. So it is small in the context, in the context of living at Sydney at sea level for a year. All right. So coronary calcium scan, something to think about. Um, thank you. Let's move on now finally to um, diet nutrition. And this is an area that investors are becoming uh, very much aware of from the perspective of of three major groups of people, that is the worker, consumer, and community health. And, and we think investors have an important part to play in engaging with companies on better nutrition. Our sustainability team, led by Robin Parkin, has written on this topic extensively, um, and those articles um, can be uh, seen on our website. So in, in your view, Jason, on a relative scale, how important is diet nutrition for heart health and, and overall health um, relative to some of those other factors that you've talked about? Um, in fact, diet and nutrition is one of the most important factors in, I'll say, cardiovascular and, and, and metabolic health. The food that we eat and what goes into our body is one of the major influences on our, bi- on our bi- biological system. And the, you know, the habitual dietary choices that we make have, have significant effects on, on, I guess, on, on the health, on the health of, on the health of our body. And it's also something that people, that my patients feel they can have some control over. They, you know, often they'll, you'll come, they'll get di- people get diagnosed with heart disease. Here's your statin. Here's your medications. <laughs> you see you later. Right. But in actual fact, I find that 
you know, patients that were interested in diet, they want to feel empowered that the dietary choices and patterns that they make will have a, will have a significant impact on, on their cardiovascular health. And we know that both, you know, dietary patterns and food quality have a major effect on, uh, on cardiovascular health. And I guess one of the other things I think is really important to think about is that as a society, we should also think about food, food quality, especially in certain areas. There's a great article in the American College of Cardiology that talks about food deserts in parts of, parts of America. And we have them here in Sydney too, where you cannot actually get Good, quali- good quality, reasonably priced food. You go out to and you see out in the Western suburbs and you see strip malls of junk food, you know, of Hungry Jack's, Big Mac, Pizza Hut, KFC, and, you know, these these convenience stores that have, you know, absolute rubbish to, you know, to eat and said, well, is this the food we're feeding our young people? And we know, and we've looked at studies in America where we look at those, pe- those people in, uh, those, those people have the early onset of atherosclerosis. We talked about atherosclerosis starting in the, in their 20s. Well, these are the, these are the populations that we've studied that, that show that. So I think as a, you know, as a broader level, these are really important factors we should think about. You just mentioned something there I'd like to get your definition on just, just so I can understand it better and the listeners can as well. Metabolic health. What's the actual definition? So there are a few different definitions of metabolic health. Though one of the broader ones includes, uh, you know, a healthy a healthy body mass index, a healthy waist a healthy waist waist circumference, normal blood pressure, normal cholesterol levels, and normal and normal triglyceride levels. Um, it is part of uh, I guess it's part of cardiovascular health because. You know, I think some people can seem to be metabolically, maybe may seem to be metabolically healthy, but then maybe I put them on the treadmill and their cardiovascular fitness is not is not very good. So there's it's it's part of the picture, but a very important part of the picture, but not the whole picture. So, so for good metabolic health, what's the best type of diet in your view? So, um, this is what a question we get asked all the all the time. So. For the be- in my opinion, the best diet for cardiovascular and metabolic health is a dietary pattern that we'd probably call the PESCO Mediterranean style diet. Um, and that's been done on the background of multiple studies over the last 10 years that have looked at the beneficial effects of a Mediterranean style diet, high in extra virgin olive oil, high in actually nuts as well on cardiovascular outcomes. And I mentioned earlier about when I recommend a dietary, a dietary pattern or, or intervention, we want to make sure it leads to better outcomes. So we followed these, these, this group of people. It's called the PREDIMED study. It was, uh, performed in Spain and Europe. And they followed, they did a large study. So it's 10,000 people, which is the numbers you need to get any sort of clinical events in large cardiovascular trials. And they followed them for, you know, for, for, for many years. And they showed that people adopting this diet was somewhat better than a standard low fat diet or low fat American Heart Association diet. And this diet was higher in good fats. It was higher in polyunsaturated uh, and monounsaturated fats, olive oil, avocados, nuts, fatty fish. There wasn't necessarily a low-fat diet that for so many years was, if you had your heart attack, I want you to go on a low-fat diet. But the challenge with a lot of low-fat diets that were recommended, they were actually high in refined carbohydrates and, and, and sugar. So when people ask me about the optimal diet, I will always come back to healthy dietary patterns. And there's a great book that I recommend to a lot of my patients. It's called The Blue Zones um, uh, by um, Dan Buettner. Um, and he's studied some of the world's longest living people. And there's a couple of communities around the world, um, Okinawa, um, Sardinia, Sardinia in Italy, um, Icaria in Greece, Loma Linda in California, which is a Seventh-day Adventist vegetarian, but they're mostly vegetarian. And then in this place in, in Costa Rica. And we look at what are those healthy, what are the, the commonalities in those dietary patterns? So all of them have a low amount of low, they do not have a lot of processed foods. They have low trans fats. They do not have a lot of refined carbohydrates. All of their diet is relatively high in, in legumes, which I think is very important. Some have a more predominance towards fish, such as in, in, in Okinawa, while in Loma Linda, it's, you know, it's mostly, uh, vegetarian style diet. Um, and so 
it's dietary, healthy dietary patterns becomes important and the quality of our food. I have a lot of people now, you're seeing a lot of different diets such as the ketogenic diet or the low carb diet become quite popular. And yes, for some people that will work, it will help them, it will help them lose, lose weight. What we don't yet know is that having a diet very high in saturated fats and those sort of fats, you know, often come from large amounts of red meat, dairy and eggs will then lead to any better cardiovascular outcomes. But people can lose weight on a ketogenic or a low carb diet, and that may help with metabolic health. Um, but you don't want to mortgage your cardiovascular health to, to lose weight. You got to find some, a dietary pattern that can, that can do both as well. Um, a great, you know, story that I have was a, a couple of years ago at the American College of Cardiology. Um, I was in, um, I was in Washington, DC. I happened to meet the ex president of the American College of Cardiology. And he's a guy called Professor Kim Williams. He was head of cardiology at Rush University in Chicago. And as it happens, the president of the American College of Cardiology had a heart attack. <laughs> and after his heart attack, he, said, what is the optimum dietary pattern for cardiovascular health? And he, his feeling was this was a mostly a plant-centered diet. And he has been a proponent of that dietary pattern for cardiovascular health for the last five, five to six years. Um, and there's lots of other very, you know, very, you know, smart people in, you know, in, in cardiology that realize that that dietary pattern is one that's been associated with lower cardiovascular events. And so the mix of protein, fat, and carbohydrates in that diet, where you've got a rough, rough guide, how should we think about that? I, you know, I that's a, that's a good question. I look, I tend not to think about that that mix, you know, too much, but rather as part of a healthy dietary as a healthy dietary pattern. We know that the optimum amounts of carbohydrates for reduction in cardiovascular, uh, I guess, morbidity lies at somewhere between 40 to 50, 50%. It's not in these ultra low carbohydrate diets. And there is no long living group of people in the world that has ultra low carbo carbohydrate diets. So the optimum carbohydrate is somewhere between 40 to 50%, you know, healthy fats, probably somewhere, somewhere between 15 to 30%. And, you know, and protein making up, making, making up, making up the rest. And there's a great study that I show when I, when I give presentations is that if we can replace, if we can replace only 5% of animal protein with plant-based protein, we can have a significant difference on cardiovascular outcomes. So I always tell people, yep, you're gonna, if you're gonna have, you know, meats, that's, you know, that, that, that's okay. Make sure it's from, I guess, you know, from a good source, if possible, you know, organic and, um, and, and grass fed. But think about replacing some of that with plant-based protein sources. We're lucky in a place like Sydney where we've got great access to some more of these, these, these food, food varieties. Um, but that can make a major difference too. Right, so a lot of our listeners are on the corporate lunch circuit. Um, so as they sit down, particularly this this time of year, kind of around the holiday season, and they're looking to make a healthy choice, what, what, what are you going for <laughs> as you look down the menu? Well, firstly, there was this study done by Valentin Fuster's group I mentioned before as part of the uh, something called the PISA study that looked at a corporate business style of eating versus, versus a more healthy style of eating, These the business lunches and and they show that people who habitually do this had more atherosclerosis or plaque or plaque plaque in their arteries. So that's also been, I guess that that's also been studied. Um, I guess the, uh, the the simple advice is um, is to you know think about uh, you know perhaps you know lean fish, you know green vegetables, you know a legume a legume dish. Try avoid you know lots of you know I guess sweet things at the end at the at the end of meals, um, and yeah, I think keep it fairly simple. But also, I think people have to live as well, and you should. I think it's been a difficult time for a lot of companies getting together, and you should celebrate celebrate that as well. You've got to have that balance. No, balance. I agree. So, so can we just touch on obesity as a way of um, I guess bridging the topic from nutrition to uh, to exercise. Um, now, recent stats just put out um, by the ABS show that I think 60 to 70% of Australian adults and around 20 to 30% of 
children are classified as being either overweight or obese with uh, obvious ramifications for, uh, for disease, um, future mortality, ill health and so on. Um, if I'm looking at diet versus exercise in making sure you're in that healthy range weight-wise, what's, what's the balance? How should I think about those two important drivers? Okay. In my, in, in my personal mind and in my clinical practice, I see look, diet, diet and exercise probably having equal proportions of importance um, because for, for two reasons. Um, one is that, you know, diet, you know, we are becoming fatter as a, as a, as a nation. We're not quite as fat as America, but we're not, you know, with these poor food quality, we're not falling far behind. And, you know, the amazing thing is there's this drug, it's a diabetic drug, but people are now using this drug to lose weight. So not doing the, the, the lifestyle and dietary patterns, you know, and, and this is, you know, everywhere people are trying to get, get and this is why there's a shortage of this, uh, of, of this particular drug. So, so diet is, is very important. Uh, and, you know, in terms of, you know, in terms of weight, and there are many different ways to, you know, there's not just one diet that, that it's going to lead and lead to, to weight loss. And one of the great studies is there was a study that showed, that compared some of the major diets, such as the Atkins diet, the Zone diet, the Pritikin diet, you know, Weight Watchers, various weight loss diets, and then, but then it, people all lost weight. But then at one year, a lot of them put back put back on weight. So you have to find a sustainable pattern. I, I tell my patients that I think some of the work of some form of time restricted eating or calorie restricted eating may may be may be beneficial as well and you've got to see what you know what what works for you but the reason why i think exercise plays as an important role is that you know exercise causes our muscles to be metabolically active and that metabolically active helps burn burn fat and calories even when we stop exercising for some people that can continue for a few days afterwards and i think when we're exercising and when we're feeling fit we don't want to go and put that junk food in our body we feel more likely to fuel our bodies with with healthy things so i see them equally as important and what's the ideal exercise regime do you think so, so that is a great that is a great question so people have asked me what is there any one type of exercise that whatever you are going to do, whatever is going to get you out and, and moving. We know in a way, if, ex if exercise was a drug, it would, if we could bottle the pill, the, the biochemical, the, the brain effects, the metabolic effects of exercise into a pill and call it something, it would be the world's best selling drug by far, more than Lipitor or anything like, more than anything, anything like that. Um, and we know that then if exercise, we're going to prescribe exercise for cardiovascular health, what is the optimum amount? So we know for, for most people, the optimum amount will be getting up to probably around 150 minutes a week of moderate intensity exercise. Um, and so that may be anything from from doubles tennis, a brisk walk, a light, a, you know, a, a, a light jog, um, but whatever is getting getting your heart rate to probably around seventy seventy percent of your maximum heart rate. Moderate exercise is where you can you still can can talk, but you're a, but you're a little bit but you're a little bit puffed, and so you have to do more of those more of those sessions. Um, what weight bearing versus cardio? What what kind of blend? So. You know, it doesn't from, in terms of cardiovascular health, it doesn't make too much of a, too much of a, of a, of a difference. Though, interestingly, people that do high intensity exercise, it doesn't involve lots of heavy weights and, you know, more cardio exercise involves improving aerobic condition do tend to seem to live a little bit longer. That's more on a, from a genetic and affecting actually the telomeres in our DNA, in, in our DNA. Um, for, if you don't have that amount of time per week, and for some people don't, then if you can do 75 to 80 minutes a week of high intensity exercise, so that may be like a hit class or going for a faster jog or really, you know, putting yourself under, you know, you're getting your heart, your heart rate up, that, that confers what the optimal cardiovascular protective, you know, benefits. Um, but including some weights, I think is important, but also, 
from a card, from a cardiac longevity point of view, you want to be getting that, that, that heart, that, that heart rate up. Now, I'm not saying if you do more, you're going to be, you know, it's going to be bad for you. Obviously, extreme exercise can be bad in, in some capacities, but, you know, any more doesn't necessarily add too much in terms of cardiovascular longevity. However, we know that at any age, the, the fitter you are from a, a, you know, your aerobic, the fitter you are from cardiovascular fitness point of view, the longer you will live. Um, and so if you are in the elite, you know, cardiovascular range for someone of your age, you're going to be able to take what life throws at you. And especially with regards to, to heart, heart disease and potentially it, there's good evidence for cancer as well that having a better cardiorespiratory fitness is, is better. But if you, that's where I recommend my patients be. So I want them to be in the top 20% of age co- and sex match cohorts in terms of their aerobic exercise capacity. And I would encourage people in their exercise, however, exercise programs to include some sort of activity that allows them to improve their overall, you know, f- their, their overall fitness, not just, you know, being able to lift, lift, lift stronger weights. But I guess on the other hand, I also think that, especially I see in the, I guess in the corporate world that people will go to the gym and do five or six high intensity classes a week. And I don't necessarily think that is the ideal for them either. I always recommend some form of a more slow practice, uh, something like, uh, you know, like yoga or Pilates and for often a lot of uh, people that, that I see, I'm sure in, in the corporate, you know, investment world as well, they sometimes need to slow down. So doing that sort of class, I think balances the, uh, the other, I call it the yin and the yang. And, 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 uh, and cardiac fitness, you're talking about resting heart rate, recovery. How, how do I actually measure that? Yeah, both both by a number of different factors. So one, the fitter you are, the lower resting heart rate you will you you will have. And that because your heart becomes more efficient with every heartbeat. The better our heart rate recovery is at uh, one minute, meaning that you know I d- we'd like whatever to our peak heart rate in the 150s, 160s, 170s. If we can recover that, you know, back to around 120 with one one minute, that's that that's a good marker. But also, you know, how how many we like to use in cardiology something called metabolic equivalence, which is a marker of uh, I guess a marker of effort and and workload. And the higher the METs you can achieve, you know, f- during a particular time frame, you know, the better your aerobic your aerobic fitness is. Um, now, many of our listeners are in highly paid corporate jobs, CEOs, fund managers, um, brokers, advisors, and and so on. And you've mentioned a few times that that probably matches up reasonably well with a lot of the people that you see. Um, you, you've mentioned stress a few times. Uh, how would you actually define stress? In, in this type of environment with the people you see and the people that listen to this podcast? Uh, look, <clears throat> stress is one of these difficult, difficult things to define because it's different for every in, in different different for every in, in individual and about how their own internal makeup and how stress manifests within that within themselves. So on a biological uh, biological level stress produces certain hormones within the body such as adrenaline noradrenaline and cortisol adrenaline and noradrenaline these are our fight and flight hormones they they have affected causing um, constricting blood vessels raising by you know by 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 raising raising blood pressure ele- elevating heart rate cortisol is is the is the dominant stress hormone released by our adrenal glands <clears throat> and can cause meta- meta- metabolic change um, and you know deleterious effects met- metabolically and all of these are often often released um, and then stress causes us to choose perhaps behaviors that may not be best for our best for our cardiovascular and mental health things like you know more alcohol lack of lack of exercise other other factors and I always, as part of my standard history, I always ask about ask about stress because we we know. And coming back to atherosclerosis, Matt, is that you know it wasn't really realised <clears throat> some years ago that stress does play a part. But imagine if you've got all of these hormones rushing around in your blood, and then the effect that has chronically on your blood blood vessel blood vessel system. So I think it is a really important part of cardiovascular health in this day and age. So, so how can we better manage stress in our lives, in your view? 
that's a, that's a great question and I think stress is universal in, man, in many of our lives for a variety of reasons. Sometimes living in Sydney is a stressful situation. Sometimes work press, pressures and patient and people have been very stressed with, uh, you know, COVID, COVID 19 as well. I always, I include stress as one of my pillars of cardiovascular health because it's something that, that needs to be looked at. Um, I do recommend for a lot of patients that a simple practice such as some uh, simple mindfulness meditation may be helpful. And I was lucky enough to do some work with uh, Professor John Kabat-Zinn, who's a, actually a professor of psychology at the University of Massachusetts in Boston, but he he started a program called the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program in in Boston, and this looked at uh, this was a referral center for people with medical diseases where they felt stress was a major contributor. And he showed taking patients through an eight-week course, and these courses are now available in Sydney. You just Google mindfulness-based stress reduction. They are they are available and are very helpful, and, and they look at both a cognitive viewpoint and using and using meditation. But some people use exercise as a stress reduction. You know, I always and for. For people, sometimes speaking to uh, a counselor or good, a good psychologist or a executive coach can also be helpful. Now, can we touch on supplements? And we're getting towards the end here. You've been very generous with your time. What's your overall philosophy on supplements versus everyday healthy living and or diet? This is a great question. And I'll, a good story is I'll get people coming to my room with a box full of supplements and say, this is what, this is what I'm, what I'm taking. I said, well, tell me about your diet, your exercise, your exercise. And almost invariably that they're deficient. So the other thing I'd like to point out is in Australia, we are very lucky with our food quality. We have good macronutrients. We have good micronutrients. We've got access to good quality fruit and vegetables good quality produce that for the most part is not deficient in in a lot of in in a lot of these 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 are uh, these these vitamins and 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 antioxidants i always tell patients it's better from the plate than the bottle so we need to be getting the majority of our uh, vitamins and uh, from the food from the food that from the food that that we that we eat. There may be a proper medical reason why some people may not either absorb a certain vitamin or may need an extra vitamin. Then then I think it is valid to supplement. They've done a large we've done a large meta analysis. This has actually been repeated twice. That has looked at the effects of taking antioxidants supplements, um, vitamin D, calcium, high dose antioxidants on cardiovascular outcomes and events. And invariably, they do not show any difference. So it's so taking large amounts of supplements and for any one supplement, it's very rare that will show any, any one, one difference anyway, which goes back to my point about, about dietary patterns. Um, perhaps there was a benefit of folate and B6 in terms of stroke reduction. That was in fact the only benefit of supplements. But if we're having a diet that's, that's rich in green vegetables, we should certainly have ad- adequate, adequate amounts of, of folate. So universally, I tell people, first, let's get the diet, the dietary pattern and, and the diet quality right. There are certain supplements that I recommend to help achieve certain therapeutic goals. And that's a, just, that's a bit different from taking supplements for general well-being and cardiovascular health. If you want to lower your cholesterol, for example, without using drugs, and that's a perfectly valid approach for someone who's, who's low risk and has got slightly high cholesterol, I might suggest to you, well, why don't you take some psyllium husks, which you can buy from, from, a, from a health food store or, or flaxseed. I might say there's a compound called plant sterols, which is often was found initially gave to the public in the form of these margarines that you might find. But these days, I think there are healthier ways to have it, and you can have it as a as a supplement. You could be buy from a health food from a health food shop from one of the major sort of man, man, vitamin manufacturers that can lower cholesterol by about nine by about nine percent. So it's not not too bad. Um, and then there's some other supplements. Another supplement that's great for cholesterol lowering is berberine. And berberine is good for metabolic health. And we know in certain studies that can lower cholesterol by about LDL cholesterol by about 15 to 20%. So 
for then I might recommend supplements when I'm trying to achieve a, a certain thera therapeutic goal. And the same for, for blood pressure. We know there's been an Australian study that's shown the effects of aged garlic extracts can actually lower blood pressure. And I was just reading a study on hibiscus tea as well about lowering blood pressure and beetroot juice. So there are some things that I would recommend in addition. Um, but what's really interesting to me, Matt, is this th that the vitamin and supplement industry is exploding <laughs> before our eyes. And you've got a chemist where house you see all these rows and rows of of of, of supplements and you know overall uh, I, I question about the, the absolute benefit they'll have on people's health <laughs> right, so you mentioned one of the four i was going to ask you about so plant sterols that was pretty clear omega-3 i think it's the um you mentioned chemist warehouse and there's other uh, obviously other retailers and so on i think it's it might just be the biggest selling supplement certainly from blackmores and and others so omega-3 what's the view there so look omega-3 is overall, I would say, is beneficial from a cardiovascular point of view. And there've been some, some studies that have shown that in, uh, that, that omega-3 may be, may contribute to the prevention of cardiovascular disease. Just recently, there was a study called the, uh, the, uh, I think it's called the Reduced Study that looked at people already on statins who had elevated triglycerides and it's part of metabolic health. And we showed that we, if we gave them high dose, it wasn't, it wasn't an omega-3 supplement. It was high dose EPA. So EPA is one of the active ingredients in, um, in, in omega-3 fish oil capsules. If they had high dose EPA, they had a significant reduction in both subsequent heart attack and subsequent need for a stent and a bypass. Omega-3 is very good at lowering triglycerides. So it's very, it's actually my first line agent at lowering triglycerides. You have to have slightly higher doses than what is recommended on the bottle, usually double, but it's very effective at doing that. Um, once again, if you're getting adequate amounts from your from your diet, I think it's helpful. It's it's probably the best, but I don't see any harm in taking an, an omega-3, an omega-3 free supplement. Um, one thing I would say is you choose your supplement uh, manufacturer carefully because you want to make sure that the ingredients, some of the ingredients that they've used have shown to have adverse adverse effects. Um, but I see it as probably beneficial in terms of uh, in terms of cardiovascular health, um, but especially if you've got ele elevated elevated trig triglycerides, we know it may also be helpful in people with certain types of arrhythmias as well. Right. Vitamin D. Vitamin D, very neutral on cardiovascular health. Um, and it actually, yeah, has made no, in this one large meta-analysis did not make a significant difference by, and in actual fact, there's been another study just published in the New England Journal of Medicine who said, unless you've really got things like osteoporosis or you're really low, extremely low in vitamin D, there's probably limited benefit in supplementing it. All right, last one, um, magnesium. Um, so magnesium is, uh, I think magnesium is a, is a great supplement um, for, especially for people with arrhythmias such as, you know, ectopic beats, sometimes people with, with atrial fibrillation. It may be a very mild muscle relaxant and so that may have an effect on, on, on blood pressure. I know that probably as a sleep aid, it can be fairly, can, can be fairly helpful as well. And often people that do a lot of, people that do a lot of, a lot of exercise find that they lose magnesium through, through their sweating. So I think it's useful to replenish magnesium in, in that, in, in that regard. So I, I see it as a, as a useful, as a useful supplement for many people. Well, we've made it to the end. Uh, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, slightly longer edition um, than than usual, but there's so much ground to cover. Um, thank you to our sustainability team for all the work it's done on health and wellness, nutrition, obesity, and so on. Um, all that's available on our website. Um, but thank you, Dr. Kaplan, for for sharing your knowledge and expertise. Um, reference to a lot of great data, research, clinical studies, your expertise. And uh, I think people are going to find this um, really interesting. As I said before, it, it impacts us all. Um, from a corporate perspective, those um, people working in companies, um, customers, um, clients, and also the community. So um, thank you again for being a guest on the Good Investing Podcast. Thank you for having me, Matt. Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes. And for more information about ethical partners, funds management, 
visit ethicalpartners.com.au. The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision.